Virtually everyone thinks this world is complicated, which in some ways it is. But are human problems unsolvable? If a problem cannot be solved, is it right to think of it as a problem? If the problem is solvable the solution will be simple. After all, once a problem is solved, the problem is understood. Once a problem is understood and solved it has been simplified and a solution becomes the new reality. But the single most important thing to understand is that problems are of our creation. There is no natural problem. There are no objective or intrinsically real problems. There are only human problems. We do not need to learn how to solve our problems. We need to learn how to stop creating them. A solution can only have one variable. Anything that can be corrected by modifying a single variable is not inherently complex. If more than one variable is involved, the one variable cannot be changed without impacting the other. This essentially precludes the possibility of solving a complex human problem, that is a problem created by more than one variable. We cannot solve unemployment when impacted by inflation. The a priorian hypothesis is that there is one factor or variable that is fundamental to all human problems, it is predicted to impact everything else in ways which seem beyond our understanding, yet this variable, when identified, gives us a key to changing the world, once we comprehend how to calibrate it. This is largely gibberish to those who think the world is physical. But those who think the world is physical cannot solve the world's problems. So, bear with us a bit. What this essay seeks is a single cause of the world's problems. We have postulated that all social problems are created by mankind, unemployment for example, is not a natural event to be cured by seeking the natural cause of unemployment. We must look to the solution for this and other social problems, in our own kind and culture. To restate this proposition, there is no natural proposition or variable that will be found to solve all human problems. Either the source of our problems is found in metaphysics, or it does not exist. The proposition made here is that there is a single cause for humankind's problems or his problems are natural and unsolvable. We predict this source of our human problem is a single, heretofore unidentified and uncalibrated variable. We intend to demonstrate that by manipulation of this one variable, all of our human problems can be eliminated, not just superficially altered. We predict that if there is a single variable it will manifest in many ways and in many guises and be found in the form of an either-or proposition, not in the form of two absolutes on an infinitely long continuum. This is important to realize. Because if the predicated variable is solely quantitative problems cannot be erased. They may be made worse or less but not eliminated. If rust is a problem with automobiles, we can reduce its appearance but never absolutely eliminate it, therefore regardless of what we do about rust, rust will always be an issue when dealing with steel-based automobiles. We also notice that the presence of either core factors predominate. The Bible talks about flesh and spirit, good and evil, the saved and unsaved. We talk about the right and the left, right and wrong and many other opposites. But there is also a variable that which is a single variable, has a negative and positive aspect. That is value itself. There are positive values given as positive integers and negative values written as negative integers. It is predicted on the basis of these observations that the variable we are seeking is value. But to understand this variable better, we will look at what we are talking about when we mention human problems. Most people do not look at human social problems as a class of thing. We are used to treating them, singularly. 
Unemployment, for example, is not looked at in connection with fear or a decline in faith or even as a moral issue. We never even look at religion, economics and politics as a trifactor of symptoms all leading back to the same source. In short, the tendency has been to reduce the size of our problems. One group of persons focuses on ending unemployment, another looks at crime and others and the politics of our culture. But how do we solve unemployment if we cannot solve the underlying problem that is the source of all of our other problems? In short, what we say here is that solving problems is an all-or-nothing deal. We solve them all in one fell swoop, or none get solved. This idea is not totally new. Men have discussed first-order principles and the nature of problems for eons. We do not have the space to go into this topic. But we will say that many considered happiness to be a first-order principle. People thought humans had a right to be happy, or at least to seek it. But happiness is derivative, not causative or primary. We derive happiness from things and events. Happiness does not create the events that bring us joy, nor does our unhappiness cause social problems to become worse. To pursue happiness for its own sake is to lose it. Despite what many think, there are a lot of clues pointing to where the solution would be found. It has already been noted that if the world is physical there are no solutions. But this observation dates back at least to Plato, who considered the physical world an illusion. Reality, according to Plato and others, exists beyond the phenomenology of the senses, in the world of ideas, or what we might call concepts today. People associate this position with solipsism, which translates into self-centeredness but which in the broader sense suggests all we can know is our own ideas. If that were so the universe is nothing, but an illusion created by us. Which is no better than our mind and sense of self, being an illusion. We cannot manipulate reality with our thoughts, and the attempt to do so denotes we are insane. But physical matter cannot mimic life and consciousness. Yet, physicists find thoughts and expectations impact their experiments. Our thoughts do impact our lives. If we expect the worst of people, we are likely to meet the worst in them. If we define people as physical objects, we will interpret what we see in a way that reflects how we think about people. If we think of people as spiritual beings, we have conceived of a being alien to those who consider man a creature of flesh. We do not create reality but reality is created, it has to be, because if it was not composed of ideas, how could ideas encompass it? In the end all we have is our ideas and our words to know and describe what reality is. Reality is a word with many implications attached to it. But all we can do is talk about the word and what it means to us. There is nothing there but the information. A piece of paper is a pretty simple thing. We call it a thing, but a thing is still just a word as is paper. We know what a piece of paper is when we see it because we see it in terms of what a piece of paper is in words and ideas. The question has always been is there something there to attach the word to? But that is the problem materialists face. There is no direct apperception of paper or anything else. We are said to observe the world through our senses, but what are our senses but words? Everything our senses perceive including our senses, are in our mind. Everything is in the mind and the mind is in everything. There is no way to find a boundary between what is in the mind and what is outside of the mind, because the inner and outer are contiguous. But the problem is, we are mixing metaphors, or trying to understand the mental in terms of the physical and they are inherently different. 
Now this metaphysical dilemma may appear to have led us a long way from the problem of unemployment and the other problems we face. But the problem of unemployment is a mental problem. Unemployment is not a physical problem, it is an ideational one, a problem of how we think about the issue. Let's imagine the world is physical. Let's call all this physical stuff that makes up the world, property. But some of this property is not truly property. Some things are what we call a property owner. The property owners own the stuff we call property. Not that complicated a situation. But what if the property owners and their property look identical? No one can tell the property owner from the property on the basis of looks alone. How is property physical rather than metaphysical? If there is nothing physical that divides property from property owner there has to be something metaphysical that causes the division. The metaphysical feature that differentiates property from property owner is power. Property owners have a mystical component called power or authority. Property has no power. Property is owned. Property is powerless without the owner. Own means that the thing, regardless of appearance, is property. It is the possession of power that defines who an owner is and the absence of power defines the property. Power as we know, is a simple idea. One person is bigger than another and stronger. A person is born earlier, is a male, better trained or more motivated. But he might motivate others to follow him, have created better weapons, or develop better tactics. There is a line between individual power and political power. But they are related. Few leaders are under six feet tall. Few leaders look weak and sickly. Followers prefer their leaders to be imposing men. Property and power are related. They are not just correlated, they are different ways of looking at the same thing. Talking about someone with power is tantamount to talking about someone with much property. Leaders who have much, yet start wars to take over lesser domains, may appear to be megalomaniacs and to some extent they are. But most leaders are aware that their power is directly proportional to the property they control. The leader can intensify control of an area and its people or he can expand his area of influence. Both paths lead to greater power and more property. We notice that power and property are on an infinite scale. One can have zero power and property and be dead or have infinite property and power and be God. As individuals we inhabit any point in between these extremes. Power and the struggle over property creates competition. We want more power and property and struggle to avoid having less. If power and property gives a person authority and authority means the right to direct the actions of subordinates, we are compelled to ask how is the exercise of authority regulated if all persons are seeking power and property. There is obviously a competition for the higher place. This is where evil comes into the picture. Each man looks to obtain the highest place. But no man alone has the ability to ascend to the highest plane, so he enlists followers. The line between the property owner and the property he owns in the form of those who subordinate themselves to him. Subordination gives us the phrase, quid pro quo. This roughly translates as I will give, to get. Two reasonably equal men can fight it out and the winner takes on the next challenger and so on in an endless battle for dominance. Or the competition can be modified. The subordinate helps the master to obtain power and property in the expectation he will get a share of the spoils. Stratified hierarchies are actually an extremely efficient way of wielding power and controlling property. No group mastered the art of stratifying power better than whites.
most other groups are either too top-heavy or granular. Granular systems are not flat but they have lots of regional power centers. England was highly centralized at one time as were most places. Centralized governments do not harm a nation if all nations are constructed that way. But England, when it began to chip away at the central power of the king, created a stratified power structure with different groups inserting themselves in different parts on the power continuum in an orderly way. The king has some power removed but it was distributed to the lower regional centers in a way that kept the power centers from becoming independent of the crown. America created a government based on countervailing powers. Like everything else, a balance of powers is an effective strategy, given a stable society. In situations where the executive branches of government are uncooperative, the separation of powers creates a lot of problems. But we are not here to talk about the strengths and weakness of various government models. Power is based on ownership of property. The legitimacy of power and property ownership is predicated on the truth of the dual doctrine of power. Power justifies itself. Might makes right and the end justifies the means. The end purpose of power is the accumulation of property. Wealth in this paradigm is how the powerful measure the right. But being able to knock another man out or beat him to the draw or kill him in a sword fight is one thing. But when it comes to winning on the battlefield, many other issues come to the fore. What brings the right of might into starker focus that knowing one is right, because one is alive and the owner of another nation and all of its peoples and property? But truth in war comes at an incredible cost to both winner and loser. War is the raw manifestation of might deciding right. But at some point, the king must cease war and resort to administrating the state and its subjects. This is an entirely different problem. One cannot kill all troublesome subjects. When the king was able to centralize power in his person his whim was the law. But this brings us to the crux of the matter, the connection between law and power. Power is not just correlated with law, the law intellectualizes power, it causes power to be internalized in the form of the law-abiding subject. But before we move forward to look at the issue that is causing all of our problems, we have to take a small step backwards. We need to look more closely at the idea of physical reality. If physical reality exists, the only thing that needs to be considered is our ability to cause an effect. The acquiring of power and the accumulation of property is tantamount to being a first cause and the source of all future events. Power embodies the law. The law of gravity is embodied in the effects of gravity. But it is the law and the conceptualization of the event that has prior existence, that is because, as we have argued, the world is conceptual, not physical. The possibility must exist before the event can occur. But Satan took the law and manifested it as the physical. Satan took mankind's spiritual authority over earth and placed it in human rulers. Control over property in all of its forms turned us into objects and property. If reality is physical there is no God. God did not create the physical world, the world he created was good. It was morally perfect and spiritual. Physical reality is not good. Physical things cannot be good because good is a metaphysical concept. If there is no God there is no right and wrong, no truth, no absolutes, no metaphysical truths or spiritual factors. If reality is physical, we are left with nothing but the physical. No one can prove God exists if we are in a physical reality, because God does not exist in the physical universe. There is a spiritual reality composed of truth that is ruled over by God. 
these two realities are totally alienated from one another and everything in one is incompatible with everything in the other. It stands to reason if there are two realities, one with God and one without, that there are two peoples with two distinct ways of thinking. These two peoples compose two distinct races. One people are ruled by law, the other by grace. But this is where it gets interesting because the physical reality precludes the possibility of metaphysical truths. Physical reality is expressed as the one reality hypothesis, OIH. But Satan cannot deny the spiritual realm or argue for the exclusive existence of physical reality without contradicting himself. Metaphysical statements must be used to deny metaphysical truths and defend the one reality hypothesis. The claim that only one reality exists is a metaphysical statement. The claim that all truth is empirical, a non-empirical statement is asserted. Is it not true, then? Reality is physical is a lie of Satan. Because it is a lie it cannot be made consistent with the truth. Ultimately the claim that reality is physical is inconsistent with the implication derived from this claim that metaphysical statements have no validity. If one is a proponent of the one reality hypothesis, one is a legalist and ultimately a supporter of the movement towards a one-world fascist state. Living by the law creates a competitive market that is inflationary. Competition has only one outcome, a winner. The one reality hypothesis has only one end. Power and law centralizing property ownership in fewer and fewer hands leads to the emergence of a one-world fascist government that owns and controls everything. Whether one world state is a private company or a communist government is a moot point. At that level there is no distinction between them. To escape this destiny requires faith. People think faith just means faith in God or a feeling of trust. But this kind of faith does not do anything. Our faith in God does not impact him. We are not saved because we have decided to accept God as a friend. What we are required to do is alter our relationship with believers, we must learn to trust one another. This is the leap we are required to make. This is not to say belief in God is not central to faith, but mankind cannot believe in God as a subjective exercise. This is not said to diminish the role of Christ in our salvation. Without Christ nothing else matters. This must be said, because one must always know, beyond any doubt, that the message one is receiving, is a biblical message. But the point is, faith must bear fruit and the fruit of the Christian is the church. But the church is a very specific configuration of believers. The church, also, is not defined by subjective criteria. The fruits of faith can be seen because the church is real. We know Satan and his angels know who Jesus is. But they do not have faith. But this does not mean they do not know who Jesus is, as this would be a contradiction. They do not have faith because they cannot form the church. This is beyond them. Satan and his minions deal with believers as non-believers do. They hedge their bets, they see us as a potential threat and they look for an edge and a way to take advantage of us. We have said that when the world competes it accumulates property as a form of security. The unbeliever wants to accumulate property because the unbeliever is motivated by fear. Unbelievers do not trust God, but the fact is they do not trust anyone, including themselves. Without trust how can anyone argue they have faith? Those who fear others must resort to law to control others. The person who has faith has no need for insurance. On the other hand, the person who puts their trust in fallen man is a fool. 
We have faith but faith is not an unspecific trust in people. To have faith is to have structure, it is to build the church. If one's faith is thrown to the world, that is not faith. It is not trusting God. It is trusting in the inherent goodness of man. The church is the embodiment of God on earth. However, we have to understand faith is directed at God, never at Satan. We can have one master, only. We need to have faith to fight fear, but we cannot have faith in those who seek an edge and an advantage. We cannot have faith in the law nor in the accumulation of property. Faith is not a personal factor or subjective experience. To have faith is to have a different way of living from this world. Faith produces real change that in general we refer to as the church. Faith is not a subjective sensation. One does not have faith in the way one might have a sense of unease. Faith must be manifested as a new life. Faith does not make cars and homes, or trees look different, it makes us see them different. The reality of faith is not visible with the physical senses. Physical reality belongs to God. We can modify it but not transform it in a substantive way. Human reality is sociological or institutional. One might even call human reality, cultural. The reality of faith is a different way of living divorced from the ways of the flesh, this means the way of the spirit does not utilize law or property ownership to control others. This means that to live in spirit is to do what the rich young man was told to do yet, found himself unable to do. He could not dispense with his property. He could not eliminate his distrust. Yet, the process of divestment is more about how we understand ownership, than about how we use property. The CEO or civil servant has property he or she controls without having title. All that any person needs is access to enough property to create what one needs to pay his or her costs. Indeed, how does it benefit us, if we have a million acres and can only use a small portion of it? One of the problems of the medieval era was that a few powerful lords owned everything but did not know how to use it. The state was kept in poverty until capitalism broke down these estates. There is huge risk in divesting oneself of one's property, unilaterally. There is also a technical problem. We are to give to Caesars what is Caesars, but the state did not create the physical world and has no claim on it. This opens the question as to whom is poor in spirit. We know who the poor are, but who are those who are poor in spirit? The poor in spirit do not have a connection with the church. If living in faith is to live in a new reality, then to be in the spirit is to be in this reality. But this requires the ability to contribute to this reality. This is why, when we divest ourselves of commercial assets, we donate these to the church. Assets are given to the poor in spirit so they can be strengthened in the faith. This is how the church is built, assets are for the use of those who are in the faith and can best make use of them. But we have noted that the law exists because fear exists. Fear is the proper response to power. To eliminate fear is to eliminate risk and the threat of loss to one's property. We own what we create but no one created the physical world, this belongs to God. We have no right to the physical world, but we have permission to use what we need for personal use. It is the excess over what we need for our personal use, what we have no right to. But, and this is important, we do not follow Satan's guidelines when divesting ourselves of what does not belong to us. We follow the guidelines of God. The path to Christ is technical and right and wrong is measurable. 
there is a right and wrong way to undergo rebirth and entry into the world of the Spirit. Because the Church has become corrupted in our understanding by the influence of wolves, we use the term a priori to define people who live solely in faith, separate from the world. The a priorium is the biblical church. To live in faith is to live in a new reality and the church is the manifestation of this new reality, the reality of faith. To live in faith is to live in a different world than the world of the flesh. This may be hard for those who live in the flesh to understand. We call these people sapiens and those who live in the spirit a priorians to keep the division clear. Satan has confused our language and without carefully selecting and defining terms it is easy to get people confused. Confusion is what Satan wants. The church has become a club anyone can attend customized to one's tastes. Members can serve as diligently or as lightly as they wish. This is not doing works of the spirit whilst living in faith, not according to scripture. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship of righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion of light with darkness? What the faithful must impress upon themselves is the divide that separates faith from fear. If Babylonians are governed by law, then Apriorians are ruled by faith. But there is a clear and precise line that separates one way of living from the other. One life causes our problems, and one way of life solves our problems. If property ownership represents fear, then property divestment represents faith. But obviously if we do not produce the fruits of faith which we do our works of faith, we are doing something wrong. We as Christians must build the church, but it is vital to understand precisely what this means and how the work is measured. There is a reason we are told not to be unequally yoked with the unbeliever. When a person lives by the law and strive to accumulate property, we are creating costs. It is well known that the state creates costs it cannot pay for out of its own efforts. It ought to be simple to see that if we add superfluity to the economy we get inflation. If the market is forced to share its goods and services to those whose consumption does not equal their production, there will be inflation. It is not that the exercise of power is inherently evil. It is that it is an incoherent concept unless it can create inflation. Power cannot pay for itself or it eliminates itself in its own inconsistency. Power must inflate the market, it must establish law that regulates the market. It must do this in a way that legitimizes its expropriations. Everything we say about the satanic system comes down to someone imposing costs onto the market and thereby creating inflation. There is no specific cause for the world's problems. Unemployment, poverty, taxation, waste, pollution, inflation, inequality, oppression, crime, war are symptoms of the problem. The system is its problems. The solution is not to tweak and modify the system's problems, it is to erase the system itself. The world's problem is the satanic system that manifests inflation. It is an inflationary system. The only way to solve the problems of this world is by coming out of it. However, if we wanted to focus on the key issue facing this world it is evil, it is people who look to take advantage of others and who would rather use some form of coercion to force others to subsidize them and their agenda. In short, if you produce a million dollars worth of good and consume or acquire one million and one dollars or property, you are part of the problem. Your actions produced inflation. It is by looking at the income you take in and the income others get from you, that determines your legitimacy. If our accounts cannot be reconciled, we are part of the problem. We need to pay for what we get. 
the solution to this world's problems are as simple as this. But if we pay the costs of other people, we are also part of the problem. We can be excused, but we are still doing wrong. People justify charity and government subsidiaries by pointing out need. But this only begs the question as to why the need exists. Unfortunately, mankind started out assuming desire justified the exercise of power. The ability to do was the same as the right to do. People who could claim land and what others had produced did so. This created a need for what we know of as government. But governments only regulate production, they do not make production. The state can only distribute what already exists. Which means one of two things, either the state does not exist in a physical sense and what it distributes is not needed because everyone has produced what they need, or the state does exist as a parasite and to justify its existence it takes from those who have worked and created goods and services to those who have produced nothing or less than what they think they are entitled to. So the state takes from the productive and gives to the less productive, including the state, itself. If the state did not do anything it could not exist. If it only took to pay its own costs, it would be strongly resisted. But by promising different groups different benefits it creates an artificial need for its agencies. The system needs the state, and the state needs this system. The federal power to tax and regulate permits companies to own vast amounts of property and individual to create great disparities of wealth and power, something not possible without the regulatory power of the state. No matter what anyone's opinion is, there are only two logical possibilities. We can work and earn what we need to survive, or we cannot do that and if we do not work and pay our own way, we either die or survive off what others have and can do. But if we are working and paying our own way, what use is the state? If we support democracy, we are gamblers, playing the odds. Even if we work and appear to be self-supporting there is a margin we want to exploit through the agency of the state. Otherwise, we are not bright enough or capable enough to conduct our own affairs. Why would we support a state that provides us with no benefits? But of course, the state does provide us a benefit. It protects our property, it protects our power, it protects our privilege. Naturally, we think the other guy has it better than us. He is gaining a marginal benefit from the state not available to us. But we still think if we argue and fight hard enough the state will restore to us more of what we are entitled to. This is gambling. It is hedging one's bets and even betting against the house. It's not sane because it does not lead to a measurably good outcome. To be sane is to be rational. But the main feature of a sane person, the main component of sanity, is honesty. The liar is incapable of making sane or rational choices. Insanity is defined simply the scale of one's lies. The insane are so big a liar they are considered incapable of knowing what reality is. But would it not make more sense to say the insane do not know what honesty is? To be honest is to purge oneself of unreasonable forms of thinking, it is a form of mental rehabilitation. Sanity is a perfecting of one's faith because it removes dishonesty from us. At the root of all of human problems is the single issue of dishonesty. It is dishonesty with the self that ultimately leads to insanity and all of the irrational activity that bedevils the world. We do need to see irrationality in the way we view insanity. It is never rational to lie. Yet, one must always understand the question one is being asked. The world of the flesh is a world built on lies. The solution to the world's problems is a world based on truth. 
The first step is to be honest with oneself. That is the bottom line.